Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm Barb Higgins, and in this podcast, I'll share personal stories of great joy and tragedy and the steps that brought me there. I have become adept at tracing them backward to find the origin of an event, good or bad, that has affected my life. I have gone from being on top of the world with Division I All-American success to being unable to get out of bed with the grief of losing a child and everything in between. I am painfully honest, which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here, recording episode 42 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. And this is episode one of season five. My seasons run one right after the other. Primarily, as I've explained before, if you've listened to me before, my seasons all focus around a, a certain subject. So season one was Jack and season two was Molly. And season three was a lot of the years leading up to Molly's death and my trauma thinking. And I talked a lot about a book called The Body Keeps the Score. And then season four, I just sort of analyzed parenting Jack. You know, I'm 58, almost 59. And so, you know, I'm entering the last year in my 50s. I remember being of an age where I thought some of my age was old. You know, when I moved back to Concord, which is where I'm going to sort of start this season, I was 26. So my mother was 47. That's 12 years younger than I am now. And I was an adult and I thought she was so old. I have to say, I thought she was really, really just thought my parents were so old, but they lived a lifestyle that was a lot different than the lifestyle I'm living. And at age 47, all four of their children lived elsewhere. And so they were, you know, the empty nesters and they were both very busy. My dad still worked full time and my mom and I started a business called Fit Start, which was actually a lot of fun. So I'm sitting here beginning season five and I wanted to have a whole different recording place. And you know, I started off in this little room upstairs and then I was in front of the tree in my living room. And then I've been in my office and I had the picture of my, that my grandmother painted behind me. And I just felt like, you know, it would be nice to mix it up. And so I came in here today, very disorganized. I'm actually <laughs> feeling similarly about my life as I did when I made the decision to move back to Concord. So it, it's, it's interesting sometimes when you self-analyze, you realize that sometimes we do the same things over and over again and don't realize it. So those of you who are watching me, you'll see sort of a plain white wall behind me. And on it, I have taped, taped a scotch tape, thumbtacks, some pictures. I have Molly's poster, which has her quote on it. Do you think you have a purpose? If so, what? I think mine is to make people happy. Does that make you happy? Yes. Purpose fulfilled. That was Molly's Instagram quote that she changed like two nights before her death. So that's a significant piece of what propels me sometimes around the Molly B Foundation. So I have that back there. Then I have all these pictures of Gracie and Molly. They're all given to me by people who knew and loved the girls or knew of and loved the girls. So those of you who are looking at me, I'm pointing up to a picture here and their cousin Jordan, or she's my cousin, so they're whatever, we're all cousins. She drew that and it was framed in our kitchen and, and frame fell and it broke. So it's been sitting in here unfixed forever. Underneath it is a photograph and it's a picture of Gracie and Molly and the baby, Jack-Jack. This was a present from Carolyn Rose, and she's a medium that I've gone to, to have readings around Molly and lots of things, actually. And so she just worked, photoshopped two photos together so that it looks like Gracie, Molly, and Jack are all together, which I really, really love. Then above me on the other side I'm pointing is a sketch, and that's done by Annie, and both of them are. That Annie is Keisha's cousin. Keisha and Molly were best friends long ago, and Annie is this amazing artist. Another one of my great ideas that never followed through was writing a book together with Annie and she would illustrate it. She is 
unbelievably good at capturing facial expressions and the, and the real, the realness of a face. It's amazing. I love her art. She's doing good things actually. And I'm very, very proud of her. Those pictures I have on the wall and I have them here because they were sitting over there in a pile with a bunch of other pictures that, you know, why not put them up and look at them and have them be useful part. So right now, this is what's behind me. And I think it will morph and grow as season five goes along. So what am I doing in season five? Well, I'm skipping over, I'm skipping over a bunch of years. I worked my way back, you know, with Jack. And then of course, preceding Jack is Molly and preceding Molly is her death and the years leading up to her death. But I started at my job loss and my job loss from the school district was very, very significant. And if you've never, if you don't know anything about it, just Google my name. <laughs> I was really, really just plastered in the press and the newspapers were not kind to me or my family or particularly the family I was helping. It was a pretty ugly scenario. I'm skipping over that whole chunk of time. And that time period would be probably, let's just say from like my marriage to Kenny. And then I met that family like, you know, five years into the marriage, like eight years into the relationship, nine years into the relationship. So I'm doing everything prior to that. This season, season five, we'll talk about my decision to come back to Concord. And it was a pretty significant decision that was based on actually me feeling a lot like I feel right now, frustrated, overwhelmed, unproductive, not doing what I should be doing, feeling like I'm, you know, drinking too much or not exercising enough or not eating right, not taking care of myself, just overwhelmed. And I have amazing things going on and a beautiful baby. The critics in the world would bemoan me for making all of this public, but you know, the way that we help one another is to be honest and open. I can't help people if I don't know what's wrong with them. And I can't provide help if I'm keeping secrets. And so what I decided to do is to skip over that chunk of time, the chunk of time from really, I guess, from when I moved, when I moved back here was 1989. And then I met Kenny in 1996, got together in 1998, married in 2000. And then I made some fateful decisions around 2005 that changed the course of my life. As I've told the stories and I've told this podcast and thought back to things and, and remembered things and processed things, which is what happens when we share, I have a pretty good idea of some of the steps and decisions I made that set my life on such a bad track. What I'm going to do is skip over it because so much of what was happening before all of those bad things happened play into the reason and the whys and wherefores of making those decisions. So I'm going to start with the fall of 1989, and that would be the fall that I came back to Concord. So I left Concord in the fall of 1981 and went off to college. So I was 18 then. So I came back in 1989. So that's eight years. I always think that I lived in Boston for 10 years, but it was eight years, 81 to 89. That'll be season six and that'll be a fun season. You know, what are you talking about all the time? You talk about college and partying and competing and all of that. But so many of my experiences are not surprising given my upbringing and childhood and bad things that happened to me and just how I tend to navigate the world and the people that I end up becoming friends with. My move to Concord actually had so many, so many little messages of what was to come and I know how to pay attention. So I was 26. I'd been living in Somerville and teaching school in Woburn. My prior year, I lived in Needham, but I taught two years in Woburn and I just, it was just, it was my first actual teaching job. And I think I was emotionally just not ready to make it. I needed to extricate myself from the life of a of sort of a nomad. I was still running quite a bit, but obviously with, with a full-time job, that becomes different. And, you know, I can't just up and leave and go run a race here or there or whatever when you're working full-time. And I had a very hard time adapting to the confines of a full-time job. I didn't like it. I didn't want to be told when to get to work and how long I had to stay and, and I couldn't have a day off to do something else. And I'm still that way. 
the contradiction in my life is that I function best when I have a, when I'm a donut maker. Tell me what to do. Tell me what time to be there. I have a hard time structuring myself. That's sort of an interesting dichotomy in the life of Barbara Higgins. My life was, was just culminating. Things were coming to a head and I was a bit out of control in my partying, even though I had this full-time job, you know, summer's off. And, and I, just, I just realized that if I was going to make a change in my life and do anything good in my life, I needed to get out of Boston. I needed to settle debt. I needed to save money. You know, I was living on credit cards and, and a teaching salary in Boston in 1980. 80, 85 and 86 and 87 and 88, those years, wasn't enough to live in Boston. And so I thought, well, I'll move home and I'll live with my parents. And so this was a one-year plan. You know, a couple of things leading up to that one-year plan are significant. And I think back now, like, oh my gosh, what would my life have been like had I done that? So I ran for Nike Boston. And when I realized I needed a full-time teaching job, I applied for a job in North Carolina. And that, you know, there was no internet. It was a telephone interview and I mailed resumes and I was offered a job. I actually take that back. It was not North Carolina. It was Georgia, right outside of Atlanta, Georgia. And I could have taken that job. I was offered a job and I had a spot on a running club called Nike South, which was a similar component to Nike Boston, but it was in the South and it was centered in Atlanta. And I didn't go and I didn't go because I had a boyfriend and I didn't want to leave my boyfriend. And of course, when I moved home, that relationship ended shortly thereafter. So it was sort of a move point. It was just me chickening out is how I look back on it. It was a chance I had, an opportunity I was given, and I didn't take it. And I have some regret around that. I can't sit and live in regret, but I, I've not forgotten that I made that choice. And I've not forgotten the good and the bad that came from that choice. So I turned down the Nike thing. And then I'm out partying and being ridiculous and crazy. And I'm at a bar with a bunch of people. And we're listening to a band that's popular in the running community, Steve Smith and the Nakeds. <laughs> they played on the Cape and they always played at the Falmouth Road Race. And there was a bar in Falmouth called the Casino. And they would play there all the time. It was, it was just so much fun. And I was there, but I was drinking and I was probably really hammered. And I remember I was smoking a cigarette. I don't did smoke cigarettes, but I, you know, somebody next to me was smoking, so I smoked one. And so some people I knew came in, one of whom was my Nike coach at the time, Bob Seventy, and he was livid. What the hell are you doing? I was just like, oh my God. And I got in trouble and he was just like, forget it. I'm not coaching you now. You get out of my face. And he was right. You know, I had all this talent and all this ability and I just shunned it. I just snubbed it. He used to tell me that I had more, more discipline than anyone he met in the sense that I never missed practice. I showed up in any, any condition. I never missed a workout. I ran for a couple of different running clubs. And I remember calling on a payphone, John Babington, my Liberty coach, to say, here's what I hear in my times for the workout. And he said, you actually did the workout? And I'm like, of course, why wouldn't I? And he said, well, you're on the Cape, you know, you're at the beach. I just didn't think you'd do it. Well, that part of running and being dedicated, I had down. I never missed a day, but I ran hungover. I ran sick. I did stretch. I ran injured. I lacked commitment. When, you know, when I wasn't staring at the person in charge of me, I, did, I didn't do what I needed to do. I didn't eat right. You know, diet Dr. Pepper and honey buns for breakfast and salt and vinegar chips. You know, I, I look back on it now and, you know, that's just who I was and where I was. I didn't really understand what I had. And I had gotten so much from it that I didn't really, really understand what I was missing. Could I have run a little lot faster? Probably. I think so. You know, I used to say my asthma got in my way, but I think if I took better care of myself, that might not have happened either. So that's the frame of mind I was in. I needed to, I needed a geographical cure, they would call it in AA. And that's what I did. I moved home. And the weekend that I moved home, I had moved some belongings home already. Home was my parents' new house in Webster. So I wasn't moving back to the house I grew up in. It was a different home, but it was with my mom and dad. And my sister, Johanna, had just left, had gone to college or whatever. So she was gone. Finally, they have the house themselves and I come back. 
And actually, I think she ended up coming back as well. And the two of us lived there together for part of that year, maybe all of that year. So here I was back where, you know, with my parents. And this was going to be a one-year deal. I was, I had debt. I just had to straighten myself up. I'd been removed from Nike Boston. I wasn't really competing and I didn't have that. I didn't have that connection anymore. And I had an injury. I remember I had a calf injury and I got it because I was dancing and drunk. And I think I fell off a stage that I was dancing on or something and hurt my leg. So I didn't even hurt it running. And, and I remember just being so distraught with myself. So the weekend that I moved home was David's sister, Karen, got married. And so she had this beautiful wedding, wedding reception and everything. And and, you know, of course, you party and party and party. And I won't even get into the things I was putting in my body at that time. But all of you that have heard of the 80s, <laughs> use your imaginations. And so I remember waking up on the basement floor at David's house and just waiting. You know, I'd slept all day and people were awake already. Some of us were still sleeping and all. And it was just like, oh, my God, I got to get out of here. Not out of here like out of David's house, just out of here meeting this life. And they moved me home. So... Richard, Karen's new husband, had a big green pickup truck. And maybe it was blue, but it was a big old truck, three on the tree. You shifted it here. It was awesome. And we went to Somerville and loaded all my stuff up in it, and they drove me home. So I went from this busy, busy, bustling city of Somerville, you know, to David's house, which was in Newton, which is a beautiful suburb, complete other side of Boston, very different. And that house, that beautiful house is torn down now. I'll talk about that later. Off we went to, to New Hampshire, and they dropped me off in Webster, which is really, really rural. And you had to drive by a big dairy farm and wait for the cows to cross the road, all 45 of them or however many. It was pretty interesting to drive home. And I remember thinking at the time that I was making a big change, like this was a big shift. Things were different. I had nerves about it. And so they left and I went, I went to sleep and I woke up in the morning. I'm having coffee with my mother. And I remember thinking, gee, I should probably find out when the first day of school is. And what happened next was such a precursor of, of things to come. The phone rings, and of course, no cell phones and internet then, really. That was all still so far away. So it's a, a phone on the wall, and I pick up and answer it. Hello, and it's my new boss. I said, hey, how are you? And she said, great, how are you? And I said, great, I just double last night. I'm unpacking. When do we start? And she said, well, where are you? We start right now, today. And, and I was mortified. I just didn't know, and I hadn't called and asked because I was too busy wrapping up one life to begin a new one. And so I jumped in my car and drove to my first day of, of work and I was still hungover and I was still exhausted. And I really thought I had a few more days before the school year started. And these were days, there were no students there, but it was, it was our workshop days to get ready. And so I was thrust right into a job that very, very shortly in, I knew was a terrible fit and had been a mistake for me to take. Not that I didn't love the students. I actually really cared a lot for the students, but I didn't have a good enough sense of boundaries and I wasn't creative enough with coming up with high lessons for high school students. I had taught at an elementary school and then a middle school with special needs kids. So I took their lessons that were already prepared and modified them. So in terms of creating schoolwork, I didn't have that skill yet. And I worked with a really creative teacher, but things actually really had to go his way and he would want my help. We just didn't communicate. It was it was really a disaster. And I used up every sick day I had. But the big thing I did, and I was sitting in a student with a student assistance program leader, and I can't remember her name, a long time ago. And, you know, she was talking about sobriety with these kids. And some of these kids had hardcore drug issues. I'm sitting there like, okay, I can't be disingenuous here. I have a problem. I went to my first AA meeting and it was at the Unitarian Church here in Concord. And it was September 23rd, 1989. And I remember it because my friend Bridget's birthday is September 23rd. So I just started that. And so starting the life of sobriety, and I didn't have a drop of alcohol for, I think, like seven and a half years, a long time. And I was fine. I didn't miss it at all. 
my relationship with alcohol was very different back then. It was around partying, binge drinking, getting shit-faced. And then you didn't drink for three or four days because it was the weekday. You didn't drink on a weekday unless you're on vacation. And, you know, I was very much a weekend drinker, a binge drinker. And when I was drinking was a time that I would often entertain and do other drugs. Those behaviors were consistent and lasted up until this point. You know, I'm 26 years old now and I'm thinking, okay, I can't do this. I have to say that was a very positive choice of taking that job and just sitting with a room full of kids who were struggling and realizing I have to fix this. So that school year back, that year back, I always think of my life in terms of school years because I was a teacher, a student, and then a college student, and then a teacher. So I really never had life that didn't have a beginning and an ending every year. And it's one of the best parts of being an educator. Your school year starts in September and it ends in June. And if it was bad, you can recover from it over the summer and you get to start all over again with a whole new set of coworkers and a whole new reality. It's one of the beauties of teaching. I miss the in-class camaraderie and relationship and communications to this day. I miss that. That year was a year that I sort of overnight just cut myself off from my entire Boston life. And, you know, David was a part of that. And I remember, I remember getting really busy and, and just not calling him and, you know, it was and not going down to see him and not making plans to see him. You know, I was just caught up in my world in New Hampshire now. And I remember getting a, getting a letter, like in the mail letter from him. And he's like, do you not what, love me anymore? Like, are you ever going to come see me? Are we, are we done? Is this over? You know, and I just sort of let it slide away. It was just this bizarre. I have to say, when I look back on it now, I don't really know how I did that. It was just like out of sight, out of mind. And so we had a conversation. And I said, well, I'm up here now. And you know, I'm not coming down. I'm trying not to drink. And I'm just trying to separate from that life. And so we, we stopped seeing each other and we broke up and it was, but it was just one of those weird, weird breakups that was hard to understand. I feel bad about it now because I think it really hurt him. We had just broken up and gotten back together or broken up and gotten back together so many times. And it wasn't the last time then. So, you know, it was just one of those things. So I started this job at Second Start and I started running and I joined the Y. Like my life is now, my room was a disaster. It was a mess, piles everywhere. Every morning I would get up at the crack of dawn, I would pack a workout bag and I would pack a lunch. I would make sure I had money if I needed to buy food and I would have my school bag and then I would shower and dress and eat and then go to school and I would leave and I would go to school. And then after school, I would go to the Y and I would go running and I would lift weights. I did Nautilus then. And, and that was where I met Jim Graham, who became a really good friend of mine and then a boyfriend for a couple of years. I got, had this busy lifestyle, and, but I had no friends. You know, I'd go to work and I'd teach all day and then I'd go run and I did a lot of running by myself. I wasn't really connected to a running club yet. It was a really difficult year and a very lonely year. I had A on Monday nights. They only went once a week. I, really, I didn't go to a bunch of other meetings. So I decided I needed to do something. And so I auditioned for something called, it was a Gilbert and Sullivan play called Trial by Jury. And it was put on by a woman named Linda Ashford who started the Victorian Society of New Hampshire. And it was just, a group of us that really loved all things Victorian, clothing, furniture, history. And Gilbert and Sullivan are two composers that composed hilarious operettas, funny, funny musicals where every line is sung. And they were hilarious. And Trial by Jury was one of them. And a little side note, Linda Ashford ended up playing a very significant role in my life when I helped Roy with his divorce and everything. <laughs> she was the other side's divorce attorney. So she'll come back into play. I don't know what season that will be. But I got to know her then, and we actually got along really well. And she worked at the Kimball Jenkins estate. That's where the auditions were. I was so nervous, but it was a small group of us, and everyone that auditioned got a part in the play. 
And so I did a play my first year back. I sang in Gilbert and Sullivan. And so that was a couple of nights a week. And I started to make friends. I started to reconnect myself with people in the Concord area. I started to see more people running. I ran in some road races. I got healthy. Now, I had also had a relationship with my track coach, Seth, and that sort of blew up. David and Seth in the back and forth what was ongoing all through my last years in Boston. And I think back to it now, like I create this complicated reality for myself where I'm jumping around and trying to please everybody and making really, really trauma-bonded decisions. You know, just saying those two names ties me into, into so many patterns and habits that I've repeated in my life. And I tend to choose people that I choose a super nice person that wouldn't hurt a flea like a Kenny or a David. And then I choose people, think ahead and can be manipulative and very ego-driven like Sev or Roy that, I don't know, it's a, it's a strange balance, a, a strange mix of what I feel I need in my life. At any rate, I digress a bit, but this is important to remember because this, these are choices I was making. So I come to Concord and I have no relationship now which is a very good thing. And I had no money. And I remember, I remember more than once I've said my happiest times have been when I've been relationshipless and moneyless. No men, no money. <laughs> Here I am living in Webster, sleeping you know, in my parents' house. So it was good. I reconnected with the Baha'i faith a little bit, actually quite a bit. And I really just started to build a life for myself in Concord. And I got, I got into AA and I got into running. I ran a lot, lots of road races. I got pretty well-known name for myself as a road racer up here. The second start year ended up not being really, you know, it ended up ending. The second job that I sort of lost, my second job that I had, and the second job I lost, a little side note of Barb is that I've lost every job I've ever had. I've been asked back to several, so it's not like, I, like I'm fired because I'm doing a bad thing or I break a law. It's always sort of a, it's always more of a personal mix, like a personality thing, or I've had a couple of whistle, whistleblower type things. So in Woburn, I lost the job just because I, I really struggled with having a full-time job. And so it was clear that my commitment wasn't there. They were very willing to work with me, but it was one of these things where I had to keep jumping around and finding different situations that I might be a better fit in. So I thought moving home and taking this job at Second Start was the next step. Well, no, it was just the next job that I wasn't right for. I applied at the end of the year. I started applying to other jobs. One of the jobs I applied to was in the Caucus School District. In the fall of... 1990, I began teaching at Walker School. And I would stay at Walker School until 2004. And then in 2000, so 14 years. And then in 2004, I went to the high school. And that's where I taught until I was removed from the district in 2011. This was a job I had for a long, long time. And the steps to me losing it are significant. And again, I'll, that will be a different season. A year in Concord, going to the Y, running, joining a theater group. So I'm in a play. What I've done is now create a life for myself where I leave home the first thing in the morning and I don't get home until nine o'clock at night. So what I don't have in my life is that unwinding time, the time to sit still. Now, my weekends were this way and I actually remember liking the fact that I had these weekends that were quiet because this was a time where I was really, I would look at my bills, I was organizing money, I was trying to get out of debt, paying off car payments, paying off credit card payments, really trying to be more responsible with money. And in this year, I followed one of those snowball plans where you, you lay out all your minimum payments and you take your smallest debt and you cram extra money on that one. And the minute you've paid that off, the money you were spending every month on that one, you add to the next bill. So you're never spending less money on paying back. You're just decreasing the number of bills that you have and you can pay things back pretty quickly. And so I was focused on that. But 1989 to 1990, before I took the job in Concord, 
in the Concord School District, I went on a hiking trip with my second start kids. And it was over February vacation. It was a winter hiking trip. And we hiked up to Carter Notch Hut and we stayed overnight. It was freezing. It was warm in the hut, not so warm in the bunk beds. And my sleeping bag was very, very insufficient. And I went and slept inside. And I met this guy named Chaz. Well, I called him Chaz. He was the hot master. And that's when he hit some Charlie, Charlie McCraig. And we hit it off right away. Again, I had been separated and broken up with David for several months at this time. And so we just clicked. And so we exchanged, of course, phone numbers and addresses because, again, there was no social media. Email didn't even exist. This was 1989, 1990. I met this boy, Chaz. And so we clicked. We hit it off right away. And we, we started dating relatively quickly after that. And so now my new weekend habit was to drive after school up north to Mount Washington, where he was living. And then I would stay overnight. I would walk up into a hut that he was in and I would stay overnight, spend the weekend hiking and come back. So I spent a lot of time in the mountains and Chaz spent a lot of time coming down and spending time at my house as well. Now, for the first part of a relationship, I lived with my parents. And so that was awkward back then. And then I moved in with a woman named Cheryl Barassa, who lives in Concord and we talked together and we still know one another. And we lived together for about a year. That was my second year back and perhaps, yeah, just, I think just one year. This was my Chaz time. And Chaz is the nurse that unplugged Molly. Chaz is the nurse that I re-met. You know, I met him in 1990. He unplugged Molly in 2016. So 26 years after we met, he would unplug Molly. And that connection is a significant one. What I loved about Chaz was he was just very down to earth. He was enthusiastic and optimistic. We used to go running together and hiking together. We talked a lot. He liked my family. I liked his family. You know, that's another relationship that sometimes I wonder, hmm, why did I let that one go? But I did. And something about it wasn't right. And we, so we dated, I think, two years. I would have to say two years, a little bit more that we dated. And it was wonderful. I hiked a ton of mountains. I, I really fell in love with and reconnected with the mountains during that time. Another thing that reconnected for me at that time was my biological father. He was living in the chalet up in Franconia actually in Easton, which is right next to Franconia. I reconnected with him a bit. We went skiing at Cannon a couple of times, you know, and here he is in his 80s skiing at Cannon with me. You know, I'm not too far from my 80s now, 20 years or so. So I feel like, okay, I can still ski at Cannon. So these were things that at the time really made sense for me. I was pulling away from the party life and the, my nomad existence. I was stable and settling down. I had a nice boyfriend that seemed to be plenty all by himself. And, and I was making good choices where I lived. and so. Another great thing about the move home in those first sort of two years, living with my parents and then living with Cheryl, was that I really did reconnect with my mom and dad again and with my biological father. So family just became a much bigger element of my life. My brother Jonathan was in the Navy at the time. So when he would come home to visit, it was always wonderful to see him because, you know, he was never home. He had a three-year stint in the Navy and then lived in Virginia. My brother Rick was at that time still in North Carolina and had not moved back up. To New Hampshire. And another piece of my life in those early years was the birth of his daughter, Kelsey. So now I had this little niece and I could be the crazy auntie. Johanna moved back home. She was having a really hard time in those years. She, she was in a pretty dark place, tried two or three different jobs, was really struggling, didn't like college, really, really, just really in a struggling time. She eventually started doing tree work with Keith and he's still our tree guy, Keith Carlisle. He's still, if you need a good tree guy in Concord area, Keith is your man for cutting them down and that sort of thing. So all of those things became much more prevalent in my life. You know, when you move away and go to college and you're living away, 
you're not connected to your family in the same way because you're out, you know, creating your own new life. And as my 20s went along and when I did start to move back, that was when a lot of my friends started to get married. And I was just mortified by this thought. I was nowhere near ready to get married, nor was I thinking about any of those things. So when I really look at the decision to come back, to not run for Nike South, to not just pack up and take a job teaching school in Georgia and living with a group of female runners, to come home because I, I wanted to stay close to my boyfriend, to then break up with that boyfriend, to then sort of start a whole new life, teaching and coaching eventually, and then being with my family, a lot with my family, getting reconnected to the faith. It was a complete turnaround for me. And I really did become a very, very different person. I can't say it was a bad idea. I have to say that all of the things and all of the growth I had during the, those first two years home were significant and good. I do remember I felt so old as I was approaching 30, you know, 26 and 27. My first year in the school district was also my first year coaching. So I got a job at Walker School and I also got a job coaching cross country at Concord High School. And I remember there was, Concord High at the time was called a class L school. Now they're called division one, but it was, you know, at the bigger schools. And there was one person coaching both girls and boys. And I went to a meet and there were like only three or four girls on the team. And I, I remember being just so distraught by this because that was a big school. And I thought that there could be more girls on the team. And so I went to then principal, Charlie Foley, and then athletic director, Bill Hubbard Sr. Both of these wonderful men are now working from heaven. And with a poster, 10 reasons that you should give Barb the job. And so they just laughed and chuckled and they did. They gave me the job. In a year's time, I had quit drinking, quit all the drugs that go along with drinking, removed myself from a lifestyle and inserted myself in a very different one. Lost my second job, started my third job, started coaching. All of this in a year's time. And so that was a pretty significant year for me. I'm going to wrap up here. And the things that tie into my life now, the things that tie into who I am as Barbara Higgins now, is I see that I was running from a very similar experience that I have recreated for myself again and again. Too busy, feeling out of control, showing up, you know, leaving early for one thing to get to another thing late, not ever feeling safe or secure in a relationship. Always wondering, you know, there has to be more, there has to be more. One of the biggest negative effects in the death of Molly was I stopped keeping track of anything. No goals, no nothing. I just, if I could make it through the next 30 seconds, I was doing fine. And I'm not that way now. I've come back to being more goal-oriented and wanting to, to structure things and have plans. But I do find that what that does for me is reintroduce me to that frenetic, gotta go, gotta go, gotta go all the time lifestyle. In the years after Molly's death, when I just lost everything and I, I just was still, they were awful years and I took a lot of drugs to get through them. But the one thing that I remember not minding was the fact that I could wake up and be like, well, what do I feel like doing today? Because I didn't have to do anything. The only things I had to do were Gracie's responsibilities. I didn't have a job that I had to go to. I didn't have a group of friends that expected me to do anything. I, re I really, we traveled a lot. We got out of here a lot. I just didn't do anything. And so... In starting over and building a life for Jack, I realized, you know, in many ways, my life is as frenetic and crazy as ever. And so taking all these steps is super helpful. So in 1989, I moved back home. In 89-90 school year, I teach at Second Start. And that doesn't go so great. That summer, the summer of 1990, I worked for Boston Parks and Recreation. What a blast that was. And I have my first year ever at Princeton Camp, Princeton Cross Country Camp with Peter Farrell. And I remember I had to leave, here I go again, I had to leave the Cracks and Rec job a week early so I could go do the camp. So I had my sister Johanna sub in for me and she worked the last week of Parks and Rec camp for me. She was living in Webster. 
And that was right on the river. There's a bridge there. It's right on the river in Bosquin. That's a bridge I jumped off a couple of times into the river back in the day. So and then the school year started and I was working at Walker School and I was coaching at Concord High School. And so my life had just in one year's time really come full circle to who I was and what I was doing. I think that's where I'll leave it for now. My school district journey and my coaching journey and then my running journey along with it and my journey with Chaz and then with Graham eventually leading to Kenny is significant and big and lots and lots of things happen in those years. But in retracing my thousand tiny steps, that saying jumping from the frying pan into the fire can sometimes really describe my life. And it doesn't absolve those that have brought pain to me or hurt me. But I do have to own my steps. I have to own the steps that I've taken to get where I am. So it is June 13th. I want to say happy birthday to my little sister, Eleanor. Her birthday is today. She's the youngest of my, all of my siblings, all 9,000 of them. So Eleanor, happy birthday. By the time you hear it, it will be almost July. So that's okay. I'm reconnecting myself with writing and being a writer and getting my blog out. So hopefully by the time you hear this, I will already also released an email and a blog. That's my fingers crossed. I have a lot to do to make that happen. And I really do want to start being more of an online presence and I'm working hard to make those things happen. So I really would love more feedback from listeners. I know so many of you listen, tons and tons of people have told me that they've been listening. And no matter where you are in the journey of my podcast, no matter what step you're on, no matter what season you're listening to, shoot me some feedback on what you might like to hear, ask me a question, give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down, anything like that would be super helpful. I will close by saying that I really have reestablished myself as a competitive athlete. My foot is so much better now. No more metal pins. No more sitting here with a throbbing foot in a boot delivering a podcast. I'm feeling a lot better physically and I've been working out a lot. So although I'm not eating as well as I want to or avoiding alcohol as much as I wish, I am working out every day and that has become, I'm beginning to feel and look better athletically speaking. So I'm excited about that. So I'll, I'll keep you posted and updated on that. I do Facebook Lives just on my Facebook page. I have a Facebook group that was once the brain group and because I had the brain surgery and then it was Kenny's kidney and Gracie's graduation of Barb's brain. And it's more often now it's, it's my Thousand Tiny Steps group page, but I still haven't mastered that a social media aspect of my life, which is another thing I just need to do. These are all, you know, tiny steps I'm taking to get wherever it is I'm supposed to be. As always, do something good for yourself before you do something good for someone else. Take good care of yourself. I'm going to drink this yummy, yummy seltzer. I've been staring at it. I could drink these all day long. My favorite is Schweppes seltzer water, lemon lime. You know, I'm down to 140 pounds, so I'm trying to drink 70 ounces a day. So I, three or four of these a day balances out the tap water that I drink. But I love it. It's my fave. I should do ads for Schweppes. Your product placement. I could do that. <laughs> anyway, for those of you that see me, I'm holding up a can of Schweppes lemon lime, which I will guzzle down when I'm done. So do something good for yourself. I'm going to have a can of Schweppes and then I'm going to think of someone I can do something good for. And that's what we'll do. So thank you for listening. Please keep tuning in and encourage your friends to tune in. If you'd like to be on my email list, I'm not quite sure how that all works, but you could Facebook message me or Instagram message me and let me know that you'd love to be on the email group. Send me your emails. I won't send anyone an email that doesn't want one. <laughs> you know, so keep on the lookout for all things new related to Barb. So Jack Jack is terrific. Kenny is good. Gracie is terrific. My parents are good. We're all doing fine. So as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Tiny Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. 
I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at Barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.